Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, it's been a rich full service already. It is never easy to say goodbye to anybody that we've walked with for a while. And one of the reasons I cherish our eternal hope is because even though we may not be a church together forever, we're stuck with each other for eternity. We will never stop seeing each other one day. And I think that's a really blessed hope. If you've loved anyone in the Lord that you can't live near, go to the same church with, what a great hope we have that that's true. I want to welcome you to our service and uh, we're going to plow ahead, continue on with the Lord's Prayer series. If you're joining us from home, we're really glad you're tuned in. And I, I want to just say that I hope God will fill your home in the same way that he's filling this place and that he will hasten the day when we can all be together in person without any barriers. This morning I want to look at the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. And it may sound strange that I'm going to tackle all those lines in one message when I've done like one sermon for one word so far. Uh, but I feel like this is one giant related idea. And I, rather than belaboring it over a number of weeks, I just really wanted to give you one punchy message that I hope will stick with you for a very long time. You know, a lot of Americans are fascinated with the royal family, the British royal family. Do we have any royal watchers here? People who are kind of obsessed with the royals? Okay, one at least. <clears throat> you probably know someone who's obsessed with the royals. And I find it strange that anyone in America would be fascinated with royalty because we are a country that's very wary of authority. And I wonder if the only reason we like the British royals is because they are really just a nostalgic symbol of a bygone era. They have all the pomp and circumstance, golden carriages and soldiers with red uniforms and white horses. It's all the pomp and circumstance, none of the crazy power. Because if you understood what a true monarchy is, I don't think any modern person would want to live under a king. We complain as Americans about elected officials that we put in office who are there for two to six years, and even then, we can't stand them half the time. Half our country can't wait for them to be out of office. We live in a country where our authority figures must still answer to us. I wonder if we understand truly what a king is. That a king exercises total power without any accountability. They don't answer to anybody. Do you realize if this were several hundred years ago, Queen Elizabeth, that friendly old lady, could just go off with your head, and you're dead. They just cut your head off. There's no trial, there's no due process. It's just, if the queen wants you dead, sorry, nothing personal, done. Would you want to live under the authority of another human being that has that much unaccountable power? When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, He's really introducing for us the idea of kingship. You know, we think of kingdom as a place, but really king's kingdom is a situation, a state of reality. And the idea of kingship for us as Americans is really foreign, and to be honest, it's very uncomfortable for us. When we pray your kingdom come, 
What we're praying is that God would become king over the whole world. And that he wouldn't just become king over the whole world, but starting with your own life, you would now live a life under the rule of an actual king. I wonder if we understand just how dangerous and radical a prayer this is. You know, I grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer almost every Sunday at church. I had it memorized, the old version, the thou's and the thy's, these. And it, was, it felt like so familiar, it felt like a harmless prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you know, you say it out of memory without realizing what a crazy thing that you are asking God to do. You're asking him to now rule as king. And, and I think it's important for us just to pause as we think about this and be sober-minded about what we're praying because I've asked you, and, and, and you know, I hope we're doing this, to recite the Lord's Prayer every day as this series goes on. Because as we unfold the depth of meaning, each day you say it, you'll, you'll reckon with just exactly what, God, what Jesus has asked us to pray to God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Mark 1.15, at the very beginning of this earthly ministry, Jesus had really one sermon. And the sermon he preached was, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In a nutshell, this is what he kept saying wherever he went, is that the kingdom of God, which the Jews had waited for for a very long time, for the establishment of Yahweh God to be the true king over the whole world and to raise up Israel again. They've been waiting for that. And what Jesus pronounced over and over is that day had come and it had come not because some new program was coming or a new government was going to be established, but because he was in their midst. In Luke 17, Jesus tells a group of Pharisees, do you know that the kingdom of God is in your midst? And it's in your midst now because I am among you. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God had arrived on the earth because he had come. He was the true king and the kingdom of God had now arrived and been inaugurated in the world. When we pray, what we're recognizing is that in the person of King Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. The question is not whether we have a king, but whether we recognize and live under his rule and in his kingdom. And so the kingdom has already come, and yet Jesus strangely teaches us to pray, pray thy kingdom come. That's a future tense. We're asking him to do something that isn't fully here yet. And so how do we make sense of that? The kingdom is already here, but we're taught to pray, your kingdom come. Here's how we're to understand that. We have a kingdom which has already begun, but its fullest expression is not here yet. The kingdom had arrived with Jesus because he's the rightful king, but his rule has not been made fully complete and evident to all of creation. So we live in this time in between the arrival of Jesus and the return of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus 
establishes the kingdom of God, the return of Jesus will finalize the kingdom of God in that at that point, every single creature, every corner of all creation will fully recognize that Jesus is the king. He is the king now, but not every creature knows it. Not every creature lives under his rule. We'll unpack that a little bit because you guys look a little bit spaced out right now and I can understand why. That's a lot of theology and we've, we've only tickled it. But let me spell it out a little in, in ways that I think we can all relate to. You know, one of the interesting words associated with the return of Jesus is apocalypse. And when you think of apocalypse, this is kind of the picture. One of my favorite genres of fiction is post-apocalyptic literature. Any of you guys dig post-apocalyptic, like zombie, post-nuclear war, post-viral infection, where society is broken down and you see what we really are. We're actually civilized animals. And, and after all that, and so we, we associate the word apocalypse with calamity and destruction and disaster. Right? And in fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, one of the first definitions in most English dictionaries of apocalypse is it's a horrific disaster, destruction on a global scale. But the Greek word from which we get apocalypse is a very different kind of word. It actually means unveiling or revealing something that's hidden. The picture of apocalypse is it's like something was hidden away from view, but now the curtain. You know, it's like in all those uh, makeover shows, it's the moment that everybody's just waiting for when all this cool work is going behind the scenes, but the person who's gonna get blessed with it has no idea, and then you show them their face in the mirror, or you show them the new house, and you, look at it, this is your new house, and everyone loves the payoff of that moment because they didn't see it, and all of a sudden, here's the big reveal, now you see. That's what apocalypse is. That there's something right now that is real, but it's hidden from our view. But in the apocalypse, the unveiling happens and the curtain gets pulled away. And then you see what was hidden from you all along. It's right there. And that's the idea of the apocalypse. It's not the absolute devastation of everything. It is that what is hidden to us, this kingdom of God, the state in which God is the rightful and true king of everything, most creatures in the universe don't care. They don't feel it. They don't see it. They are their own king. If you and I are honest about it, the majority of our waking days, we, we function very much as if we are our own kings and queens. Do we not? Even though we come to church on Sunday, I have to really, I had to wrestle with this all week. How many moments during the week I live my life as a person not under rule, but a free person who is allowed to do just whatever pleases me. It's astounding how little I live in the recognition that I have a king in my life. And I'm guessing that that's probably true of many of you. Because we live in the in-between, we have stories of Jesus, but we didn't see him face to face. We didn't witness his miracles. We have written records of all of it, and in faith we believe what we've been handed down. But right now there is a king in his kingdom, very real in the universe, and much of his kingdom is hidden from our view. So between now and that day when he returns, when the curtain is peeled back, he reveals himself, we're left with this tension. Do we see him yet? Between now and then, there's lots of room for doubt, 
skepticism, ambiguity. We can live our lives every day mindless of the king. But when he returns and his kingdom is fully established, on that day, there will be no ambiguity, no doubt, no sitting on the margins. Every creature in the universe will know that Jesus is revealed as king. On that day, the kingdom will no longer be hidden. And everyone will take stock of the way they live their lives in the world we created in light of the fact that Jesus was always king. And we hardly acknowledged it. So when we pray your kingdom come, one of the things we're actually praying for is that he would return and we would see the fullness of his kingdom revealed. When you see a reality show, a makeover show, wouldn't you hate it if they stopped the episode before the big reveal? It's the whole reason you've watched 45 minutes is that moment at the end is the payoff. It justifies everything that's come before. And the heart of those who love Jesus are waiting for that moment. And if we spent our lives growing and living in a relationship with Jesus, in a way that our hearts grow to love Him more and more, then that return of Jesus will come as a sweet reunion. But if you've fallen in love with this right now, if this is the world you want to live in fully, if the kingship of Jesus is a threat to you, if what you've made for yourself is a heaven here on earth, please understand, I'm not suggesting don't have fun, don't eat good things, don't go on vacations. I do all those things. But this is a matter of the heart. If you've grown very fond of this place, of this home, of this world, of your own rule, sitting on the throne of your own life, the autonomy and the freedom to do and feel and act as you please. If those are things you've cherished deep in your heart, then the arrival of the true king will not come as a sweet reunion for you, but as a very unwelcome interruption to a life you were enjoying building. The Bible, in fact, says in, in several places, for some who have not just delayed acknowledgement of God's kingdom, but have completely rebelled against it, that day will come like a thief in the night. I don't know if any of you have ever had your house broken into, burgled, but uh, I, I experienced that. It was horrible. It was violating. He said, it's, it's going to happen suddenly. You won't be looking for it. You won't even be aware of it. And it will be upon you just like that. And for some, it won't just be, oh man, it'll be the day of great devastation. I don't say that to threaten you or scare you, simply to say, right now we live in that weird in between. We, I, we, the church right now reminds me of a teenager whose parents have left and said, listen, we're going out for the night, enjoy your time, but when we come home, I want to see all the dishes done, and you got to be in bed by 12. And as soon as the parents walk out, what happens? And not just teenagers, I think it's husbands when their wives leave. Too. Amen? Do we not become complete barbarians when our wives aren't there to supervise us? Pants come right off and you know, just you eat everything unhealthy. And so we, there's this weird in between time from when the person left and when they say they're coming back where we don't actually acknowledge anything. And then closer to that time, if we know we have a warning, we scramble to do what we know we must. That's where we are right now with that weird in between time. And the question is, can you recognize the kingdom of God even before it comes fully slamming into the world with the return of Jesus? Will it come for you as a sweet reunion? 
or an unwelcome interruption. You know, the, the penultimate verse of the Bible, second to last, that's a good SAT word, penultimate. I'll use it in a sentence. The penultimate verse of the Bible says this, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you see the exclamation mark there? That indicates that there's an emphatic nature to what they're saying. That Jesus at the end of the Bible says, listen, the in-between time won't last forever. My kingdom won't always be hidden. I will come soon. And then there will be no doubt, no ambiguity. All will see who I am. Wait for that day. Pray for it. Long for it. And the, the right response of those who love him is that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I wonder if some in the church would rather say, it's good, take your time, no rush. We're having a good time. I had to confront this in my own heart because I have adult children now and there are things I desperately want to see in their lives and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not sin to want to see my children grow up, grow old. But the more I have to lose, the more I gain in this world, I find that my yearning for the fullness of the kingdom of God diminishes every year. I've got so much to lose if it all ends now. At least that's the deception I'm living under. If it all ends now, I lose everything good. It's because we haven't understood what Jesus will bring with his kingdom. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. And when we say that, we're saying, we hasten the day, Lord, when you return and we're with you again. So that's the first sense of thy kingdom come. Please come back soon. Show your glory. Reveal who you are so there's no doubt in anyone's mind. But we also pray your kingdom come as a way of saying come right now too. We know that you're not returning, but we want to see more of your kingdom even now. Another way of saying it is, we want your invisible kingdom to become more visible. The reformer John Calvin wrote that, that that's one of the, the privileges of the church is that we make the invisible kingdom visible in our midst. The way that we live our lives. I don't know if you've ever seen a pack of animals, but most animal packs have an alpha. It's interesting because we have a dog and in my house, it's absolutely clear who the alpha is. My, my very uh, unintelligent dog only listens to me. When everyone else is like, come in, come in, sit down, doesn't listen unless you have a bribe. If you have a treat, that is my dog's true God, is the treat. But when I say come in, she will come in because she recognizes who the alpha is. That's me, by the way. At least to my dog, to no one else. But I am the alpha to a Pekingese. When you study a pack of animals, you want to know how you figure out who the alpha is. It's a little confusing because there are several figures in the pack posturing as the alpha, but only one true alpha. You don't discern who the alpha is by their behavior and posturing. You discern who the alpha is by the way that the other animals respond. 
Because there's at least, in every pack of animals, there's at least, it's always males for some reason. Three males going, oh, I'm going to be the alpha, I'm going to be the alpha. And they're barking and attacking, getting real aggressive. But the animals are by and large going, yeah, who are you? Sit down, calm down. But the true alpha gets a different reaction. Sometimes they lay on their back, they present their belly. You, you can see the reality of that authority in the way that it affects those who are under that authority. When we pray, make your invisible kingdom visible, one of the ways God does it is He says, you want the world to see a king, they'll largely see it by the way the church lives under the authority of a king. And when they see the church live by and large the same way they live, by what makes sense, what is fun, what is exciting, what is comfortable, what is what is desirable, if that's the way we order our whole lives, then there really is no distinction. The world says, yeah, you have pretty much what we have. You navigate your life by your wits, by your opportunities, by your chances, your resources. But at the end of the day, the only thing you have that we don't is you have to be somewhere Sunday morning and we are sleeping in or mountain biking. That's the only difference between us. One of the ways we make the invisible kingdom visible is that we actually live our lives as though there is a king in heaven and he is ruling also here on earth, at least in our own lives. I wish I could say as a pastor, that's, that's a no-brainer, of course I live that way. But the whole week writing the sermon, the greatest struggle is not writing the sermon. The greatest struggle was coming to see that in my own life, the kingship of Jesus is missing, it's lacking in so many corners. And I'm not suggesting that all I should ever be doing is reading the Bible, praying, and helping people. It's okay to enjoy things. But I just, I realize how many areas of my life I don't see the clear evidence of the full authority of the King Jesus over me. I wonder if that might be the same for you. Have you ever looked at the state of our world and just felt like it's so broken, it's such a huge mess? You know, you know how like you can clean a room, but then there's some rooms you, you walk into and it's like, I don't even want to try. It's too much. Just seeing it overwhelms us. That's how I feel about our world. Sometimes I want to just kind of tackle it. I have the zeal to like, let's make it better. Let's try to do something. But some days it just feels so messed up. You just despair. You're like, it's too messed up. And, and for some of us, the option we've taken is, let's ignore the messed up parts and just create a little oasis of positivity and happiness of our own. That works for a while, but if you're paying attention to the real world around us, it's a mess so big, we can't fix it. It just leaves you feeling powerless. And so part of what we say when we say your kingdom come is Jesus, this is such a mess and none of us can fix this. Come and exert your rule, make things right, do what it takes to fix this. Come and make the human heart straight when it's crooked. Our first prayer is not that we would be the change the world needs, but that Jesus would come and make the change. Our second prayer is that he would be able to use us as part of his answer to that prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. 
Those two ideas are very related. The way that the kingdom is made more visible now is by the way that the will of God is done here in the same way that it is done in heaven. The primary way we learn the will of God, I mean, this is probably the most common question every pastor gets. How do I know what God really wants? How do I know what the will of God is? When we were a younger church, I used to get that question way more. Let me pause for a second, think about this. Many of you were here many, many years ago. We asked that question of each other all the time. Who am I supposed to marry? Am I supposed to live here? Am I supposed to work there? We had all these questions because life was just getting started and we didn't have all the answers. And so we want to know what God's will is. I found that as our churches age, the question is less and less frequent. Because as you get older, you, you run a few laps, you think you got it all figured out, and we pretty much know what God's will is. Or at least we know what our will is, and we assume it, that God agrees with us. And so I've gotten the question a lot less as our church has aged. But I remember the early years, people asked me all the time, how do I know what God wants from me? And I got really blessed remembering that posture because that's really the heart of it. It's not trying to figure out what the right answer is. It's that posture of saying, I care actually about what God wants. The prayer, thy, will, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, it's not about guessing the right option on a multiple choice exam. It's true that sometimes in a situation, one choice is much more God honoring than the other choice. But in many places, that's not the point. It's not which girl I marry or which company I work for, but the fact that I brought that before God and had a genuine desire to know, does it matter to you what God wants? Or does it only matter to us now what we want? It is so hard later in life to distinguish between what God wants and what I want. Because for so many years we've grown accustomed to saying it's the same thing. It's the same thing. God always wants what's best for me. I don't know about that. Sometimes what God wants is what's best for His kingdom. And He asks us to pay a price for that. To pick up a cross. And a cross was not an exercise equipment. It wasn't a place to rest. It was a symbol of sacrifice and self-denial. And He invites us to pick up that cross and come follow me. So much of what He wants for us is good for us. But his greatest aim is not to create a good life for us, but to establish a kingdom. And a part of our being in that kingdom will be bearing a cost because his kingdom will not be established without a fight. The primary place we discover the will of God is where? It's the Bible. It's where he has most explicitly and clearly told us what his will is for human beings. I'm gonna ask you something. In, at your work or maybe in your family, have you ever wrote, written um, a long email or text message and you were super careful, you included every piece of information that person would need, every question that might arise, you've already answered it in advance. It's like an eight page email and you send it off and go, everything you need is right there. And then the people on your team annoyingly pepper you with text messages all week. Um, where did you wanna put this? Where am I supposed to go there? And you're like, <laughs> It's all in the email. I know our family does that to Jeannie all the time because she sends us these long, really detailed texts. She sent one this morning about our car situation and exactly who's taking what car when. It's so complicated. I'm like, oh my Lord, it's so full of information. And I know at least three of us are gonna be like, wait, whose car am I going in? And I know what her heart will be is, ugh. 
It's all, I wrote it already. It's there. Just look at it. I wonder how many times we do that to God. We say, I wonder what He wants from me. There's a whole book. And the book, it's filled with explicit direction, but even where the explicit direction is missing, God has revealed who He is and what He is like. He has made Himself knowable in that book, so that even where He has not specifically addressed your situation, He's imparted enough of Himself, His character to us, that we have a pretty good idea what He would want. In this book, God has made His will so largely known. It hasn't addressed every permutation, every situation, but it's amazing how much of your life can be navigated really entirely on the basis of what God has said already in His Word. The issue is not that we don't know what it says, but that actually over time we start to care less and less about prioritizing what He wants because we're much clearer about what we want. And I'm not saying that judgmentally against anybody else. I've seen how different the temperature of my heart is, the submittedness of my own heart is, as I've aged. What happens though, when it's not so black and white? In a lot of choices like, should I become a drug dealer or should I become an accountant? Bible spoken clearly, duh, duh. There's no dilemma there, no real question. Just read it and don't be a dummy. But there are many situations in life where you face a fork in the road, right? And it's like, I could go either way here. Neither one of these choices is morally bad. Neither one of these choices clearly leads to a bad outcome or will hurt others. I don't know what the right thing is. Should I buy a Nikon or a Canon? Actually, for that, I don't know that it's, it's worth you know seeking God's it's, Just buy one. But, but there, are, there are situations that are much more involved, and yet neither choice is clearly one that, that um, is the way of God or the, not the way of God. So how do we make those choices? Well, even in those, there's a sense in which God must have a preference or something pleases Him more. Something will bring our lives into better alignment with what He's trying to do. And so we can even go to God in those things and ask, God, Your Word has not been very clear what the right thing to do is here. Will You help me discern which of these choices will honor You more? Now here's the tricky part, okay? When you're facing that fork in the road and either choice is okay, it's acceptable, the easiest choice is just go, all right, then let's just pick something and see how it goes. Don't sweat it, don't make it into a federal case. Just make a choice and go. And that works for most of the time. And I think if the worry is the outcome of my life, then either one of those choices is fine. It's just take a guess and go. I think that's the, the case for most of our dilemmas in life, is if you're worried about your outcome, I can't tell you ahead of time which one will lead to a better outcome. But do you know that as Christians, our well-being and our outcomes are not the primary thing that motivate our decisions? I don't navigate my life trying to figure out what will lead to the best situation for me, the best result for me. If I am a Christ follower, then my leading motivator isn't what will, be, what will work out best for me or my, my loved ones. It is what will actually make the kingdom of God more visible. What will honor God more? What will please God more? Here's an analogy that might help you understand it. When you're buying gifts for people, the amount of effort and strain you put into that gift buying process has everything to do with how you feel about that person. 
So, you know, when your cube mate has a birthday and you're not terribly close, but you know you're, they're going to serve donuts and so you're going to buy a little something, what do you do? You don't agonize over what that guy I hardly know might want. You don't contact his family members. You just go to the store and as you're buying bread, you go, oh, look, there's Amazon gift cards at the checkout register. And you just buy a gift card, right? I mean, a gift card is really nice because you're just saying, here, here's money, but not look, looking like money. And just go spend it as one place. Um, and that's what we do, right? And so you can do that. And what you're trying to say is, is okay, I didn't, it's not like I didn't care, but I didn't agonize over how pleasing it would be to you because it was sufficient for the occasion. It was sufficient. But when you're buying something for someone you're really, really close to, you don't do it that way. We don't, we don't do that for someone that we truly cherish because we want that thing we offer to delight their heart. To tell them, I see you, I know you. One of the best parts of a good gift is not that it was expensive or valuable, but that this person paid attention to this weird little thing you mentioned, and you're like, you, you remember that? You remember that I like that weird, obscure anime show? You traveled to Japan and got me a comic book, first edition signed by them, and you're like, that's crazy that you would remember that, that you went to so much effort for such a tailored, custom gift that said, this is not just for anyone, this is for you. And what you realize, the blessing of the gift, is how much yearning they had to bless and honor and please you. That's the spirit of what we do when we're offering something to someone we cherish. And so we've got these two options that are facing us. I, it's wrong, there it is. Two forks in the road. And I could just have the attitude, well, it doesn't really matter, no one cares, I just pick one, because as long as I figure out the outcome, I'm fine. But for those who cherish Jesus, for those who live in the kingdom of God, that cannot be our attitude. And I'm not saying you should be paralyzed in fear that you might make the wrong choice. It's simply this, the, the, the point of that fork in the road is not to guess right and go down the right road. The point of it is to, to pause at every fork and reinforce that my life belongs to God. And even if I make the wrong choice, the point is I've knelt before the King of Kings and genuinely with an open heart asked him, which of these things would honor you more? I can't be dogmatic about the answer to that. I might still get it wrong, but the process of asking is what honors God so deeply. It isn't so much that he wanted us to guess the right path on the Choose Your Own Adventure novel, but that he wants to establish a relationship with us where we care and prioritize what he wants so much that at every fork in the road, we kneel before the king and say, what is it that would please you? If we get it wrong, God's a very kind father. I know that if my children make a bad choice in their lives and they end up in trouble, I'm not gonna be like, I knew it, told you so. You're on your own, sucks to be you. I would never do that to my kids. Even if they completely made a mess of their lives by their own choice. And any of you who are parents, you could agree with me. You're gonna bail them out. You will move heaven and earth to rescue your children. There is what we call the rescuing grace of God that says even if you make terrible choices, the rescuing grace of God steps in and will salvage much of your life because he loves you. But if that's where you settle is I will just wing it and God will rescue me, I think you're selling yourself short on the full experience of knowing God. Because as we come before him and ask what would please you, 
What comes after is the flourishing grace of God. That grace of God that says, I don't want you to just figure out the right path, but as you go every step of the way, I want to reinforce the bond that we have. The sense in which you live in my kingdom and not in your own. You belong to me and I belong to you. That is the nature of the relationship that God wants with us. Not to guess the path right, but to never stop asking him for his path. I'm going to bring it to a close here. There's a little more that I had written down here to say. I, I just want to say it this way, okay? As, as we draw this message to a close right now. I'm 53, so I'm not the oldest person in our church. But I'm at least one lap ahead on the track than most of you. As I think about that finish line kind of approaching in the distance, I'm finding that I have a different perspective on my life than I did when I was younger. I've said this kind of thing so often because it's just a big part of my mind right now. And I found that I'm looking backwards more than I'm looking forward. I'm thinking about the weird path that my life story has taken. Can we be honest? There is no human life that goes exactly to plan. Nobody's life went the way they designed it when they were 22. You end up in weird places. And I guess the question we have is, because I, I'm still in Hoffman Estates at age 53, and 29-year-old Dave Lee would never have predicted, would have been horrified at the idea, oh, you'll be 53 and still in Hoffman Estates. You'll still be at Harvest, you'll be doing the same thing till you die. And when I was younger, I was like, please, God, tell me that's not true. I need to see the world. I need to start things, shake things. And yet, here I am. And I don't say that because I'm depressed. I'm like, how could I possibly guess that I'd be filled with joy in the very situation I would have dreaded once upon a time? See, I don't think our lives end up where we predicted. But they do reflect a story. And I guess when you're looking back at the story of your life, the real question to unpack is this. Did I end up where I ended up because I chose my way? I consistently just picked the things that made the most sense, that drew my heart the most, that felt right. Did a company tell me where I was going to live? Did I chase the weather or the money? Did I follow a friend? I mean, I'm not saying that any of those things are opposed to the will of God. Very often, those things line up just fine. God may call you to the very place you want most to live. I don't know. The point is not to say, find the most miserable place. I'm sure that's where God wants you. That place you least want to be. It's this. Will your life's twisted journey be best explained by a life of kneeling before the throne of the true king and saying over and over, my life is not mine. It's yours, you bought it at the most incredible price. How do I acknowledge that today? How do I somehow acknowledge, God, that you paid such a price to have me? And I belong to you. You are a king and I live in a kingdom. 
Will your life's story be best explained by a posture of acknowledging a king of kings over your life? Or will it be extraordinarily ordinary, like billions of other stories that just said, I did the best I could where I wanted what I thought was right. And I hope God was okay with it. I'm not saying that every person in this room should be a religious zealot or go into ministry full-time like I have. I'm not elevating my choices at all. I'm calling us as a church family to a posture before God that kneels before a king, cares deeply about what the king wants in this world, and that we will spend our whole lives building his kingdom and not ours. That, that decision will bring flourishing, but it will be a costly decision. Are you ready? This is what we pray when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth and in me as it's done every day in heaven. That's what we're praying. If we live that way, then I promise you that the sound of those trumpets and the lightning shooting across the sky on the day of his return will cause a cheer and not a groan to erupt from your heart. Bow with me in prayer. I'll, I want to ask you to just reflect on this question. Does your life point to the king on his throne? you say is the king of your life. I'm going to invite us just in this moment of quiet to just be with God and sit in that question and respond in your own way. And we'll close in a song. I'll come give the benediction. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.